darkness. Often it's an ominous word. Children are frightened when parents send them into a shadowy room. Accidents happen when light is obscured. Crimes are committed under cover of darkness. As the calendar moves towards winter, nights are longer. And when clouds hide the moon, the result makes our world seem even dimmer. In October, our society takes advantage of the threatening nature of darkness to undergird the haunting scenes of the season. Have you ever noticed that Halloween lawn displays often look silly during the day, even while they may become ghoulish at night? In Scripture, darkness often bodes trouble or evil. The first creative act described in Genesis 1 records that God said, Let there be light, since darkness was over the face of the deep. Hebrews 12.18, referring to the deep gloom at Sinai, says that the darkness there was so profound it could be felt. The absence of light has great spiritual significance. Isaiah likens it to a prison. Remember the story of Job? In the account of his profound troubles, the idea of darkness appears about 35 times. In the disasters of his life, he metaphorically encountered darkness. Paul tells us that we are to take no part in the works of darkness. He calls our spiritual enemies the power of darkness. And he asks the question, what communion has light with darkness? And our Lord Jesus, as he approaches his crucifixion, says, this is the hour of the power of darkness. You'll remember that during that horrible event, darkness reigned for three hours from noon until 3 p.m., Normally, the brightest hours of the day. Well, here in Psalm 88, Heman the Ezraite describes his own experience using this word. In fact, in the original, in the Hebrew, and in most English translations, the last word that we hear or read is the word darkness. The psalm begins with God, but it ends with this disturbing words, word. It is not immediately uplifting, as many other psalms are, but rather turns our thoughts to unresolved gloom and anguish. Now, let's be honest. This is an emotionally charged psalm. To read it any other way misses its power and undermines its usefulness. When you consult the commentaries... There is universal agreement that the 88th Psalm is the most sorrowful of all the songs in the book. It is the honest cry of a disheartened saint in the midst of melancholy and misery and pain. And someone might ask the question, well, brother, why are you preaching on it then? Well, the answer should be obvious. This is inspired scripture. Speaking of the Old Testament, Paul says, Whatever things were written before were written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's from Romans chapter 15. My desire for you today is that Psalm 88 will assist your endurance and encourage you to have hope. Several commentators point out that this 3,000-year-old inspired poem 
has been the means of aiding God's people for millennia. My prayer is that that might be true today. Now think about the Psalter with me. There are a couple of different ways that we could think, think about it. If an artist were to paint various psalms in different colors according to their themes, we would find a wide variety of shades on the canvases. Psalms 1 and 23 might be predominantly green as they portray streams of water running through green pastures. Psalms 2 and 45 and 110 would be golden and purple, for they describe messianic royalty. Psalms 22 and 69 and other crucifixion psalms might be crimson, reminding us of the death of the Son of God. But you know, the most common color tone used in the psalms would be blue, since at least in our culture, blue reflects the realities of lament. Did you know that there are more psalms of lament among the 150 than any other kind or variety? They outnumber the rest. There is more sorrow and complaint in the psalms than there is joy. And these psalms of lamentation would be blue. And among them, Psalm 88 would be the deepest possible hue of midnight blue, only one shade away from black. Or, since the psalms are intended to be sung, we might conjecture about appropriate tunes for them. Many comforting psalms, such as 23 or 91 and 92, could have pleasant melodies and harmonies to support their encouraging words. The royal psalms might incorporate fanfares. The final five psalms, 146 through 150, should reflect the jubilant and triumphant scene portrayed in Revelation 4 and 5. And all of these types of psalms would be written in a major key with all the beauty and resolution of that form of music. But once again, the largest segment of psalms, the laments, should be different. The appropriate musical setting for most of them would be a dominant minor key and perhaps a slow tempo with melancholic and evocative arrangements making them beautiful in themselves, but contemplative. Have you ever noticed how in many hymnals, at, at Heritage we sing from the old Blue Trinity hymnal, when a tune is in the minor key, it almost always is resolved into a major key in the final amen. And I always appreciate the fact that they do that, because that's a musical way of saying there is hope, even when there is sadness. If this principle were to be applied to the Psalms, many would be set to a minor key, moving to a major key at the end. But Psalm 88 is different. Not only would it be written in a minor key, but its musical setting would be discordant and perhaps even harsh. And it would not naturally resolve into a major key. Rather, it would leave us waiting for something else, some musical element to bring us out of the depths, out of the darkness. You see, Psalm 88 is a cry from the depths. Look at verses 3 and 4 and verse 6 and verses 8 and 9. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. I'm counted with those who go down to the pit. Verse 6, you have laid me in the lowest pit in darkness in the depths. Verses 8 and 9. 
You've put away my acquaintances far from me. You've made me an abomination to them. I am shut up. I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I've called daily upon you. I've stretched out my hands to you. Maybe you're familiar with some of the famous European medieval castles, the ancient dwellings of powerful kings or princes and dukes. These great buildings are surrounded by high walls and battlements, sometimes by moats or only to be accessed by drawbridges. The castle was a place of power and authority, and its size and strength reflected the high rank in society that was held by its lord. We know that many of these castles had dungeons, dark underground rooms where enemies or criminals might be placed for punishment. It's not unusual to watch a movie set in a medieval fortress and see a scene filmed in a dungeon. But often, the dungeon was not the most horrible place in the castle for an out-of-favor person to be abandoned because there was another site much worse than any dungeon could possibly be. Imagine long flights of stone steps down into deepening gloom. And usually at the lowest point of the deepest dungeon, there would be a metal grate in the floor. It might look to us today like a drain cover. I've seen some of these. But it's not a drain cover. It had hinges on one side and a great locking mechanism on the opposite side, and it marked the spot of something called an oubliette. This was a small chamber often no wider than the space a human body would take while standing, and about eight or ten feet deep. Being at the very foundation of the castle, all matter of runoff would come through the grate and puddle at the bottom. It would have been a disgusting, terrible, unsanitary place. And into this tiny, deep, dark space, someone would be dropped and most frequently left to die. There was no light, no room to move, no escape. The name for this lowest and worst prison is French, oubliette. It comes from the verb oublier, which means to forget, and it describes the hopeless situation of anyone placed there. No food, no water, no human companionship, no rest. The prisoner was forgotten, left to die alone and deprived of all comfort. And the only thing that the prisoner could do while in the oubliette with any life was to cry out for mercy, wondering, would anyone hear? Would anyone respond? Help! Over and over again, so long as there was life and breath, help! Have mercy! Save me! Well, in many ways, Heman the Ezraite describes his life in these terms. We don't find him in a physical oubliette in the lowest place in a dungeon. But his language very much describes this kind of experience. Remember what we've just read. I'm counted with those who go down to the pit. You've laid me in the lowest pit, in the darkness, in the depths. I am shut up and I cannot get out. You see, Heman is in God's oubliette. Now we ask the question, what are we to make of this? How shall we understand and apply his experience? And that's our task today, to understand this psalm. Let's, let's open it up in a couple of different ways. First, let's ask the question, what do we know about Heman the Ezraite? 
What do, do we find anything about him in the scriptures? Well, there are several clues that may help us. The first is the location of Psalm 88 in the book of Psalms and the information that is provided to us in the superscription at the beginning of the psalm. First, let's talk about Psalm 88 in the book of Psalms. The 150 psalms in this collection have not been placed together randomly. They are not arranged simply by authorship nor by chronology. If they were, Psalm 90 would be the first in the collection. But rather, they are placed into five books which speak primarily about David and his kingdom. Book one, you've read through the Psalms, so you know that there are five books of the Psalms. Book one, Psalms 1 through 41, largely, though not exclusively, tell us about David's life and experiences before coming to the throne. Most of them are subscribed with the words of David in one form or another. Book two, Psalms 42 through 72, contemplate the kingdom at its high point, culminating in Solomon's psalm of praise, Psalm 72. But the third book, Psalm 73 through 89, turn us in a different direction because it speaks of the failure of the Davidic kingship because of the sins of the kings and the people. The fourth book, Psalms 90 through 106, turns the reader away from earthly kings to contemplate the only true and righteous king for God's people, the Lord himself. And the final book, 107 through 150, leads the reader to praise the God of heaven and earth in all his glory. Well, our psalm is in the third book. Palmer Robertson, who's written a really helpful book on the psalms called The Flow of the Psalms, gave this third book the title Devastation. For it honestly depicts the trouble that came from the heavy, chastening hand of God. In some cases, these psalms reveal the sins of believers, in others, the sins of the nation. But book three honestly portrays the consequences of putting one's trust in human princes. The next to the last psalm in the third book is Psalm 88, and it carries forward this theme. Life in this world is hard, even for those who know the Lord. They must endure God's chastisements, and sometimes they do so for reasons beyond our understanding. It shouldn't surprise us that it is the lowest point in the entire Psalter. From here, one can only look up and go up, and that's what the flow of the Psalms does. It causes us to look up. Now, if you look at the superscription, these words that are written just before verse 1, they give us some help. The first portion of the superscription, which says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the chief musician, to Mahalath Leonoth, tells us that this poem was intended for use in public worship. The sons of Korah were a guild of musicians responsible for leading worship in the temple in Jerusalem, along with a chief musician. And the untranslated Hebrew words are probably the name of the tune that was to be used. Then we notice that this is called a contemplation, or maybe your translation doesn't render it into English, and it simply says maskil. The Hebrew word seems to suggest meditation or instruction. That is, we are meant to think deeply about the contents of the psalm. The next thing that we notice in the superscription 
is that the author is identified as Heman the Ezraite. Ezraite is his family name, his surname. Heman is a Hebrew word which means faithful. That's his given name. And while he appears only here in the Psalms, we find him in other places in Scripture, appointed to serve under King David. In 1 Chronicles 25.5, he's said to be a seer in the things of God, a man who spoke words of prophecy. He was a man of faith, and he was prominent in the spiritual life of Israel. And the Lord chose him to be an instrument of inspired scripture. Psalm 88 is inspired, inerrant, infallible scripture. And today we are to enter into his experience. So what do we have? We have a psalm written by a prominent spiritual leader intended for public worship for the purpose of instructing us in one of God's ways with his people. We can say that about Psalm 88. The second thing we can say is that the psalm divides itself quite simply. Verses 1 and 2 are an example of the classic beginning of a psalm of lament. They directly address God, and they do so with great urgency. Then in verses 3 through 5, we have a summary of Heman's cry to God, and verses 6 through 18 pick up the theme and describe it in greater detail. So what do we find here? Well, first, simply, we can say that our psalmist has been and continues to be in agony. That's an honest description of his experience. Like a man placed in a medieval oubliette, he cries out to God day and night. And he uses the language of faith. He uses the covenant name of God, translated in our Bible with uppercase L-O-R-D, a hint that the Hebrew word behind this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. He calls him the God of my salvation. He calls his master to hear and to respond. When we read this psalm, we need to hear the complaint that is in his voice. He has shouted his plea to the Lord over and over again, and yet there has been no reply. He's still trapped in the pit, unable to be free, enduring great pain and sorrow. Heman is before the Lord. He understands that God is present in all places, and yet the Lord is silent. It's as if Heman is saying, where is the Lord? Where is the God of my salvation? Oh, Yahweh, hear me. Oh, God, save me. Despite the delay and continued agony, Heman's faith has not weakened. He trusts the Lord will hear him and will save him from his prison of misery. We ought to take great comfort in this. Even in the midst of darkness and trouble and sorrow, his faith goes on. And he continues to cry out to the Lord, even when the Lord doesn't answer immediately. Heman's summary of trouble in verses 3 through 5 is moving. My soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to the grave. I'm counted with those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. In both soul and body, Heman feels the depths of pain. He's almost like a walking corpse. 
and his soul might as well be dead. Now we might ask the question, what specifically is Heman's affliction? Was it some kind of physical disease? Did he suffer a profound loss such as the death of a spouse or another loved one? Did he encounter a Judas in his life betrayed by a trusted friend? Well, the honest answer is, we don't know, and we can't tell. In fact, much of the language in this song is symbolic, and it's metaphorical. Some commentators speculate that perhaps he was enduring one of the skin diseases, such as leprosy, that required physical separation from family and friends. But I have to say, it's not very convincing, because it relies on the most circumstantial bits of evidence. Certainly, these kinds of diseases could produce the kind of lament we find here. But to state that this is Heman's affliction presses the evidence beyond credibility. The fact that the psalm, along with the other mentions of Heman in the Old Testament, does not describe a specific cause of suffering is really to our benefit. You see, if this psalm were to identify a particular cause, we might be tempted to limit its usefulness to those who endure a similar circumstance. But because it's open-ended, the psalm becomes a means of help for every believer who faces deep and profound troubles in life. It is a universal description of deep pain among God's faithful people. See, brothers and sisters, it's for you and it's for me in the way that it is composed. And it's intended to help us in our faith. In the long section where Heman opens up in detail his, the greatness of his suffering, there are several things to note. This is verses 6 through 18. The first thing to notice is that this section is bracketed by the idea of darkness. Notice verse 6. You have laid me in the lowest pit in darkness in the depths. And notice verse 18, my acquaintances into darkness. The Lord metaphorically places Heman in the oubliette in the place of utter darkness. And the following verses, the verses between 6 and 18, need to be read under this dark shadow. And verse 18 concludes with an interesting thought that is actually difficult to translate. John Goldingay, in his commentary on the Psalms, puts it like this. You have put loved one and neighbor, excuse me, you have put loved one and neighbor far from me, my acquaintances, darkness. Commentators acknowledge that the final few words are challenging. The New King James Version, the New American Standard Version, and the ESV render it similarly. But what does this mean? Is it that from Heman's perspective, his loved ones and friends have been taken away so that he cannot see or hear them? Well, that would seem to be the sense. But the ESV has an interesting footnote suggesting another way to translate these difficult Hebrew words, and it makes a great deal of sense to me, especially in this context. It says... Darkness has become my only companion. The NIV reads like this, darkness is my closest friend. Well, I would prefer to keep the word order of the original and say, my only companion is darkness. This, psalm, this translation fits the psalm well. As he ends the psalm, 
Heman's prayer has not yet been answered. He waits for the Lord in the depth of the shadows of the oubliette and stands as an example to us of continued cries and pleas to the Lord for help in the midst of the most difficult trouble one could face. That in itself should encourage us. Here's Heman. Remember, his name means faithful. He does not give in to utter despair and fall into silence. Rather, he constantly raises his voice to heaven to seek help and deliverance. If you will allow me for a moment to speculate, this is just speculation, I wonder, is it possible that the inclusion of Psalm 88 in the book of Psalms and thus in the word of God implies that at some point the Lord did answer Heman's cry? You see, someone recognized the inspired nature of this poem and incorporated it into the third book of the Psalter. Here's one of those places where there's a road right there that I'd like to run down and talk about who put together the Psalter. The best guess is someone like Ezra after the return from exile, but that's just a hint. The language that is used here is evocative and consistently depicts a believer in great distress. He's alone, he's imprisoned, he wonders if death is nearby, and he repeatedly emphasizes calling on God. Look at verse 9, the second half. Lord, I've called daily upon you. I've stretched out my hands to you. Verse 13, I've cried out, O Lord. Verse 14, Lord, why do you cast off my soul? These are the words of a child in great danger, pleading for a parent to come help. In verse 12, shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Heman sounds like a man who wishes to continue leading worship. Remember, that was his job assigned by David. The temple is the place of adoration, not darkness and forgetfulness. It was in the temple that the wonders of God were made known. Twice in the psalm, Heman uses this Hebrew word selah, which is not translated for us in English, but he calls us to pause and to meditate over the things that he has spoken, over his trouble. And the pictures are frightening. In verses 6 and 7, you've laid me in the lowest pit in darkness in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you've afflicted me with all your waves. Selah, stop and think. There's mixed metaphors here. A pit, the depths, your waves, your breakers, they're drowning him. Verses 9b and 10, contemplate death. Lord, I've called daily upon you. I've stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Selah, stop and think. In the psalm, the psalmist tells us that his sorrow originates with the hand of God. Look again with me, verse 6. You have laid me in the lowest pit. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me. Verse 8, you have put away my acquaintances far from me. Verse 14, Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Verse 15, I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Verse 16, your fierce wrath has gone over me. Verse 18, loved one and friend you have put far from me. You see, Heman's trouble is not a result of his own sin, but rather the Lord's providential way in his life. Now, there are other Psalms in this third book that speak of affliction because of personal sin. 
For example, in Psalm 73, Asaph tells us that he had almost slipped when he envied the prosperity of the wicked. But there's no hint of this here. Heman is like Job or Paul or even our Lord Jesus, who endured the deepest possible suffering as he faced the horror of the cross. What we have to say is this. For his own purposes, the good Lord who loves his people sends some of them into the darkest and deepest trouble. And he gives them this psalm and other examples such as Job and Paul and the believers in the book of Hebrews and our Lord Jesus to help them. Remember Paul's voice? He's not afraid to admit that he despaired even of life in the midst of his affliction. The Hebrew Christians endured a great struggle with sufferings. And they were reminded that some were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Even our sinless Savior, or of our sinless Savior, it is said, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son. Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. You see, Psalm 88 is part of a great theme of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, we are strangers and aliens in this world, and this life is full of trouble. We are called to endure suffering, all the while crying out to the Lord for deliverance. Our rest and comfort is not in this present evil age, but rather it is in the world to come. And Heman's experience is a reminder to us that we should expect trouble now. Psalm 88 weans us from the love of the world and turns our attention to heaven. And we might ask, is there any light in this psalm about darkness? And you'll be glad to know that the answer is, yes, indeed. And we've already noticed much of it. The fact that the psalm is included in the canon of Scripture tells us that the Lord wants us to know and understand, to contemplate and be instructed by its words. But that's not all we have here. Here is a man whose name means faithful, addressing the covenant Lord by his most intimate appellation, Revealed only to Israel. The nations didn't know him as Yahweh. Only Israel did. He calls him the God of his salvation. And he seeks help and trouble. Though faithful is in God's oubliette, he never forgets his God. Three times he uses Yahweh, a reminder that he is in covenant with God. And that one who is always faithful, greater than any human commitment, listens and hears. In a physical dungeon oubliette, the cries of the prisoner would go unheeded. The guards would ignore. The prince was so far removed from the dungeon that he would never hear the fervent pleas of the prisoner. But Heman knows that the Lord will hear even though he may delay. The psalmist must continue to cry to the great king trusting that at the right time he will hear and he will deliver. 
And even if the king keeps him in the oubliette until death, a better hope awaits. Well, what shall we say about this psalm? Let me suggest that there are several important things to say. First is this. This psalm validates the experience of believers who endure suffering. Suffering is a genuine Christian experience. Let's think through this for a moment. I could hear someone say, but that was the Old Testament. We live under the New Covenant. We have the Spirit who produces joy. Well, it's certainly true that we live under the New Covenant. And we have the Spirit who works joy in us. But this in no way negates the realities of Psalm 88. Think about these facts. We've already heard from Paul's words in Romans 15, which tell us that the writings of the Old Testament are given for our benefit. We must remember that for much of the apostolic era, the only scripture available to Christians was the Old Testament. And it is inspired and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Friends, all of God's word belongs to us. And we need it in its fullness. I'm more convinced of this than I have ever been. And I hope you are as well. Thirdly, we've noted the fact that many New Testament believers endured suffering similar to Heman's. This is not an isolated Old Testament experience but rather one vignette in a tapestry that extends from Genesis to Revelation. You know, in Revelation, even the saints in heaven know sorrow. sorrow. Listen to these words. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they would rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. And it's not until the end, the final resurrection, that God will wipe away every tear. We read that in Revelation 21, 4. Let me suggest to you, I fear that we have been too easily and readily deceived by prosperity preachers into thinking that the life of Christ's disciples is one of continuing and increasing comfort and joy. The Bible tells a different story. We should expect trouble in this life. For some, it will be just as profound as Heman's. Brother and sister, this means that when you face a circumstance like this, a critical illness, or bereavement, or abandonment, or betrayal, or any other dark providence... This is not an indication that you have sinned, but rather an opportunity, though painful it may be, to draw near to God through such texts as Psalm 88. Think about it like this with me. Would you be so bold simply by yourself to address God in the terms that Heman uses? Most of us would be quite reluctant to do so. We would think that that's improper, that it's too bold, that we shouldn't come before God like that. But remember this. Here we have a song, a psalm for public worship, a prayer to God for deliverance, and this is given to you. You may take these very words and bring them before the Lord. You may say, Lord God of my salvation, hear the words you have given to me. 
Why have you laid me in the lowest pit? Why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? You may pray those and be comforted by the fact that the Lord is glad to hear his own word coming from the mouths of his people. He rejoices to hear us. One wonders if Psalm 88 might have been on the lips of Jesus when he was in Gethsemane. The Psalms were his prayer book, and this may be the case. Certainly, both Mark and Luke seem to have Psalm 88 in mind when they describe the events of the crucifixion. In any case, be comforted by this psalm. Receive its instruction. And once again, to to quote from Paul, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, have hope. Make Psalm 88 your own and use it. Give it to someone else who is in the midst of deep darkness and encourage them and help them. The second application we can make is this. There's an important word here for those of us who do not endure suffering like Hemans. I'm not trying to say that everyone's experience will be like his. Certainly that's not the case. His was perhaps exceptional. But did you notice how he complains of being alone, of companions being far from him? Look at verse 8 again. You put my acquaintances far from me. And verse 18, perhaps translated, my only acquaintance, darkness. The oubliette is solitary confinement at its extreme. While we don't know the circumstances of human separation from friend and loved one, we must learn from his isolation. Christian love calls us to be companions to brothers and sisters in their time of darkness. We have obligations to them. On the one hand, we must overcome our tendency to think of trials as punishments and keep our distance from those who endure them. Jesus teaches us to weep with those who weep. And this is the time and the place where we must do this. The false doctrine which denies sorrow in the Christian life and promotes prosperity and happiness must be rejected, rooted out of your thinking. Have compassion on sisters and brothers who endure hardships, difficulties, and sufferings. In a Christian church, we all have obligations to one another. We ought to make it our aim to see that no believer we know endures suffering alone in the way that Heman did. So far as it is within our power, let us comfort and encourage one another. Speak a word of love. Remind your friend of the key of promise to overcome giant despair, as John Bunyan puts it, and pray for his or her deliverance. Love suffers long and is kindness, or literally in 1 Corinthians 13, love kindnesses, it expresses kindness. It acts according to the needs of others, seeking to aid them in their troubles. This psalm calls us to love those who are in the midst of darkness, so that they might not be able to write it in the way that Heman did. Let's not leave them to themselves. Let's come to them and help them. But thirdly, let us think of how Psalm 88 points us to Christ and to his gospel. I said a few moments ago that the book of Psalms was Jesus' prayer book. God in his kindness prepared everything for his son, and it served him in many ways. In fact, if Martin Luther is correct in saying that all of the Psalms are about Jesus, may we read this as his prayer? 
Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knew and understood the horror that was before him. Listen to how John 26, beginning in verse 36, describes the scene. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. He came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were very heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Now, much of that is reminiscent of our psalm. We are told that Jesus was sorrowful and deeply distressed, even to the point of death. He was profoundly exercised in his soul by the dread of the events immediately before him. What man could do otherwise? He knew that the physical sufferings of crucifixion would be horrible, horrible. But even more so, that facing the wrath of God against sin, draining the cup of wrath to the dregs would be the greatest trial anyone could ever know. He did not go to Calvary unaware. He was fully conscious of everything he would encounter. As he comes to the garden, he's accompanied by his closest friends, Peter, James, and John. They were brought to aid him. And what did they do? They fell asleep and they left him alone. And three times he prayed alone, calling upon God. We might even go beyond the garden and consider the entire experience of his ordeal, Abandoned by friends, exhausted without sleep, beaten by enemies, and finally crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Without diminishing Heman's sorrow in any way, we might read Psalm 88 as a transcript of Jesus' experience as he walked toward and endured the cross. Brothers and sisters, this gives us much hope. Because it reminds us of a great truth from Hebrews chapter 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, when you pray Psalm 88, you come to God by way of an intercessor who has experienced deeper and darker sorrow than you have ever known. And because of this, he is sympathetic to your trouble. He knows, he understands, he hears. And so you may come boldly into the throne room of heaven Bring your request before the majestic throne of grace and there find mercy, the cry of one in the oubliette, and find grace to help in your time of need. 
This is not a promise of immediate resolution, but of divine assistance. The Savior will give you grace to endure, and you will find help. You're not alone. You have loved ones and friends, but even better, you have a compassionate high priest and the ear of the Lord of heaven and earth. Finally, let let me remind you of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He endured the cross, despising its shame. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I ask you this question. Have you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ? You will now or at the last day. And I can tell you, he's a wonderful Savior, a compassionate Redeemer, a forgiving Lord. He took our sin upon himself. He endured the wrath of God so that we might be forgiven. He died that we might have life. He gives everything freely to all who will place their faith in him. So why would you wait? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I ask you to confess and to believe. Psalm 88 is dark. There's no denying this fact. As we've seen, it has some light. And when set in the context of the whole of Scripture, the darkness begins to dissipate. God's oubliette is undoubtedly a difficult place to be, and none of us should want to be there. Even Jesus asked the Lord to take it from him. But Psalm 88 may also be encouraging. It reminds us that we need the Lord, and that he hears us even when we cry out to him in the darkest moments of life. You see, the color tone of the psalm may be the deepest shade of blue, and the tune may be in a dissonant minor key, But there is light and there is melody to those who will listen. Glory be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we often want to hear uplifting sermons that will send us forth with joy. And though Psalm 88 seems to be difficult and perhaps depressing, still it uplifts us because it's a testimony of one who suffered but whose faith continued, who was faithful like his name. We ask you to make us faithful. Make us compassionate and loving. If we endure these kinds of sorrows, give us faith. When we see others in the midst of these sorrows, help us to be compassionate towards our sisters and brothers. And above all, we pray that we would love the Lord Jesus, who himself endured, overcame death, rose from the dead, and now sits at your right hand to intercede for us. Thank you for this psalm and the blessing we receive through it. We pray in Jesus' name.